readers, listeners, welcome, everybody, bienvenidos. Um, welcome to the English version of the Fox Page Deep Dive into Como Agua para Chocolate, Like Water for Chocolate. Uh, I think probably a bunch of you read this back in, I don't know, the early 90s when it came out. And um, maybe like me, you really loved it. I imagine a lot of you too also saw the movie, which really um, turns out really holds up. I watched it. I mean, is it a cinematic masterpiece? No, but it was really entertaining. Um, and actually some very, very beautiful footage of Mexico, which was just really, I, I, I had a vision in my head of what this landscape looked like. And it was actually so, so beautiful to, to get some real uh, vision, some real vision into what exactly uh, Laura Esquivel is talking about, frankly. So I'm really excited to give you the English version of this. The hope behind some of these um, Spanish things that are going to be coming at you is that maybe a few of you are, uh, you know, you studied some Spanish at some point, you're maybe interested in getting a little better at your Spanish or brushing off the old Spanish, dusting it off, kicking off the rust, whatever that, whatever that expression is. Um, and if you are trying to do that, then I'm hoping that by providing you an English version and then also a Spanish version, that you will be able to, uh, you know, maybe toggle back and forth. I'm not gonna, there's no way for me to recreate it exactly. That would be weird and boring. So um, what I'm going to do is just cover the same material. So maybe you listen to one and then the other, however you wanna do it. You can also listen to the Spanish one. I know this from personal experience um, back when I was kicking the rust off my, uh, my French. Um, you can just play it at a lower speed while you're doing your dog walk or whatever you're doing with your podcast. You know, put it at like 0.75. Oh my God, my voice. At 0.75 is probably going to be funny. Even 0.5. I mean, that's, that's going to be weird. But, uh, you know, hopefully this is going to be an interesting way for people to dig into another aspect of literature and of reading that will be entertaining and helpful. Okay, so um, Like Water for Chocolate was published in 1989 in Mexico uh, and 1992 in the United States, which is interesting because it was published here as a novel at the same time the movie came out, which I think was actually very strategic on their part, really um, kind of a good move all the way around. Um, Laura Esquivel is a, she she was a screenwriter, so she had a lot to do with the, with the actual screenplay. Um, I believe she was a guionista. She was a screenwriter before she was um, an author. So uh, she had lots of experience. And, and I think actually a lot of elements of the book are in fact very cinematographic. Is that word? Is that, I think that's the word. Um, so today we're going to dive into this book from the, you know, from the early 90s, at, which is set in fact in, um, in like the early probably like 1910, I think, 1910 or 1911 to 1917 was the Mexican Revolution. And the book is very clearly set against the Mexican Revolution. So written um, in the 1980s, late 1980s, published here in 92, but um, is sort of hearkening back to the earlier 20th century during the Mexican Revolution. So what we're going to be talking about today and what I also cover in the Spanish version of this podcast is a little bit of the, the history, the Mexican history that's going on and the, import, the importance, the importancia of that because um, there are actually a lot of echoes of it in the, the front story and kind of the main part of the novel. Um, and, and there's a lot of sort of uh, uh, rebeldia, there's like a lot of um, rebelliousness in the book in the, in the sort of front story of the book, in the matriarchal part, in our part um, that focuses on Tita, um, th that is echoing the revolution itself. So we're gonna talk about history. Uh, this might not be in this order. I'm just gonna tell you right now, the order of this might be a little different than what I'm saying right now in this English version. Uh, we will definitely touch on the history. We also will talk on about the structure of the novel, which is also in fact a cookbook, which is kind of fun. Um, we'll be talking about matriarchy, because it's extremely important throughout the novel. Uh, we will be talking about the, the, the um, aphorisms that we see throughout the book. So like water for chocolate is an aphorism. It's just sort of a, like a saying, um, and it's an important one. And one of the things that Laura Esquivel is doing in this book is she is promoting all of these, uh, these aphorisms, all of these sayings that we find throughout the book. But they're very important because, um, because of the ones that she's choosing. I mean, obviously any writer who 
is worth her salt is going to choose aphorisms and sayings that are, are very reflective of what is going on in the book. And they also, I think, were a really interesting window, partially just how they're set up verbally, you know, just sort of like the, 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 the actual words themselves and their double meanings or their warnings or their, um, you know, descriptive value, whatever the thing is. I think it's very interesting to look at them uh, as, as sort of a cultural manifestation. Um, we're going to be talking about the voice of the matriarch and the voice of Tita, because both of those are important. Um, here at the Foxed page, we have talked a lot about voice. Um, whatever voice a novel or any book is written in is obviously very important. And it's important. We read a lot of books that are written by women. We read a lot of books that are narrated by women. And just in the same way that we these days are um, really understanding the importance of looking at all sorts of marginalized voices, it is very important to listen to women's voices. Not only women writing books and narrated by women, but also the voices of the characters and how they are either silenced or promoted uh, throughout the novel. We're going to uh, dip quickly into the telenovela, the, the soap opera, which is very important in Mexican culture, also very important in American culture for anyone, um, you know, who is maybe 54 years old and who really dug in for a while to some of those daytime and nighttime soaps. Um, and then we're going to talk a little bit about the chivalric novel. So the novela caballeresca, which is an, like an example of that would be, well, Don Quixote is kind of like a spoof or a send up of the chivalric novel. They came before, uh, but that's kind of the big one that people think about. It's kind of a ridiculous version of the chivalric novel. But we're going to be talking a little bit about that because I would argue that like Water for Chocolate uh, owes doesn't owe a debt. That's not the way to think about it. But it, but it um, sort of has echoes of this chivalric novel. And then we will conclude. Okay, so we're going to dive right in with a little bit. Oh, um, we always just surprised myself with my notes here. Um, we always, uh, when we're diving in, I just always like to remind you that if you are here to learn to read better, really, the only thing you have to do is pay attention. I've also been adding recently the fact that um, you should write with a pen or a pencil in hand. And, and I mean, I know that there are people who either want to share a book so they don't want to mark it up um, or they want to, you know, they have a library book in hand. And if that's the case, I don't know, maybe you're writing things down in a notebook. Maybe you use post-it notes. I know a lot of people will slap a post-it note in there somewhere. Um, for me, it's not that I ever go back and look at any of this stuff. I mean, I do if I'm writing a lecture, but if I'm not writing a lecture, it's just to focus me. And I make all these marks that are totally arbitrary. Like sometimes it's a star, sometimes it's a underlining, sometimes it's a margin, like, you know, line to draw my attention. But there is something, um, partly because if you're underlining something, you usually are actually reading it twice. You know, your eye is covering the words and then you're going back and underlining them. So for me, it's a way to focus myself but I really do find myself engaged in a very different way if I am reading with a pen or a pencil in hand. I totally understand not wanting to mark your books, although I am a big believer of like reading in the bathtub and getting coffee spilled on your book and just really like living with your books, you know, just really like, you know, I was going to say abusing them, which is not what I mean, but like really digging into them. Go ahead, dog ear those pages. I mean, I used to dog hair the bottoms of all the dog hair. That is not the word. I used to dog ear all the bottoms of the pages uh, that seemed significant to me or where something really stood out. And that was, again, I didn't go back very often, but there was something about folding the bottom of the page uh, th that sort of helped me focus uh, more on the text as I was reading. Okay. Oh, while we're digressing, why don't I just also um, remind you all, if you have not gotten over to the Fox page Instagram. Um, I, I do find it kind of entertaining. I think there's some like random and funny little clips and weird things over there. But also we have some amazing weekend giveaways um, with some really incredible uh, limited time only Fox page merch. And often like these, I really weirdly I've gotten into this whole like, you know, just like looking for little things and I'll send you, I don't know, like a book with some chocolates and some Fox page matches and pencils and maybe a sun visor, even though it is middle of November. So head on over to um, uh, follow the Fox page Instagram for the occasional weekend giveaway. There's always some little question that you have to answer, like a, an opinion kind of a thing. And then I do a random drawing which is always full of integrity and is never rigged here at Fox Page HQ. 
Okay, so I want to talk about the title of the book. This is, um, we're finally diving in. So this is what we do when we dive in, is the first thing we pay attention to is the title. Obviously, the title here is Like Water for Chocolate. So this is a refrain, a, a, um, a, you know, an aphorism, a, a saying, and it essentially means it's like if you were boiling water in order to make hot chocolate, chocolate. Um, it, it, but, but what it is referring to metaphorically here is the idea of your emotions kind of bubbling over, like your emotions are, are, are boiling inside of you. They're, they're, um, they're kind of roaring inside of you. Roaring, that's not really right, but you know, they're, they're boiling. And um, it, I like the idea too that they are boiling, but they are kind of moving towards something positive. So, you know, the, the, the drink, chocolate, um, hot chocolate or cocoa, however, I mean, cocoa is made with milk, I think, um, you know, if you're looking at it strictly. But hot chocolate, um, boy, I mean, they have some really delicious Mexican hot chocolate, as we all know, you know, very thick and, and, and uh, really tasty. But um, so you have this kind of positive thing that these emotions emotions are boiling toward. It's not that the emotions are boiling up in some like unwieldy way and it's going to be a problem. It's that you have a lot of emotions building and in fact um, they will lead towards something that is delicious. So I think that that is important. So I also have noted um, on a couple of other pages um, some other aphorisms that we are going to look at briefly. One is actually the epigraph which is a la mesa y a la cama una sola vez se llama. I am realizing right now that I do not, in fact, have an English version of this book. So I'm going to have to do a little translation on the fly for you people. Um, basically, what this is saying is um, you only get called once to the table and to the bed, which, um, you know, it's kind of an interesting, it's an interesting refrain. It's not one that I had ever heard before, um, but it's essentially that you should take, well, I mean, let me do my own interpretation of it here. So, um, a la, a la, one, one thing that I really do like is a la mesa y la cama. So what it's doing here is putting the bed and the, the table on the same plane, on the same level of importance. So I love this idea. I mean, I think we all um, recognize both the, the bed, meaning sexual you know, congress, and um, you know, having a meal together, the, the idea of being called to the table, both of those seem like pretty important sensual and communal activities that humans get up to. In this case, though, I really like the fact that, that Laura Esquivel is choosing this refrain that's right up at the front of the book and that is singled out. I mean, it's literally swimming in all of this white, white page, um, white space. So you, you, you um, are giving extra attention to it kind of whether you want to or not. And it does put the bed and the table on the same level. And throughout the book, I mean, it's a cookbook, but throughout the book, you do have this sense of sex as being extremely important. And in fact, there's a lot of, um, well, and these are some of the best examples of magic realism, but there are a lot of scenes where the sensuality of the food is, is very concretely tied to uh, sexual you know, awakening. Like literally it says that she awakens um, his, Pedro's um, uh, sexual instinct with her food. So there's sort of this whole sexual, um, you know, uh, meeting, this whole sexual intercourse, if you will, that almost happens at the table at one point because Tita's um, cooking is so sensual. That was my dog groaning. I don't know if you heard that. It sounded a little crazy. Um, that's, I'm gonna show you. I'm gonna show you. Here we are. There she is. There she is. This is, uh, here we are at uh, the Vox page, HQ. That's one of them over there groaning, moaning and groaning. Okay. So we have this title that is um, is reflecting this aphorism for us, and there are also a couple more. So we're going to take a quick look at some of these aphorisms that Laura Esquivel is uh, including. I think this might have been my laziness, but I do think there are more aphorisms toward the beginning of the book. Um, the ones I have here in this Spanish version are on pages 8, 11, 14, 34, and 37. And then I don't know if they kind of peter out or if I do, um, and I just like stopped paying attention and looking for them. But my sense is that um, this was maybe a more conscious uh, choice on her part toward the beginning of the book. Okay, so we're gonna look at page eight. So this is like not a very involved kind of um, refrain or saying, but it says, Dicen que al buen entendor pocas palabras. So um, anytime, you know, she's saying que like they say that or one says that, um, you do have this idea of, um, you know, this kind of aphorism. And importantly, aphorisms, 
by definition, are kind of the voice of the people. You can almost think of them as like a Greek chorus, and you can think of them as as sort of, um, you know, the, 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 the ideals and the mores and the um, standards that are important for this community. So in this case, um, again, like the ones that Laura Esquivel is choosing have everything to do uh, with the story itself. So this one, al buen entendor pocas palabras, essentially like um, for the good listener, few words. That didn't really trip off the tongue in English, but that's the idea. For the good listener, few words. So you do have this idea in the beginning of Tita as being totally silenced by this crazy matriarch. I mean, this Mamalena, um, is like really, really powerful and really domineering. And one of the main plot points that we learn about in the beginning is that um, is that Tita, because she is the youngest child, she cannot marry and she cannot have children because she needs to stay with her mother forever until her mother dies and she needs to take care of her mother. Her mother also is just such a bitch. She's awful. I mean, like physically abusive. And also you see this in the movie as well, but also in the book, like just so, so mean to Portita. It's interesting in the movie, they give her this whole backstory to sort of justify why she's so mean, which honestly I could talk for 90 minutes about that choice that they made. I think maybe for American, you know, uh, well, maybe for everybody, for all sort of um, movie goers who are moving into this as sort of waiting for like a romance or like a um, kind of a a hyped up uh, telenovela, like a soap opera type of thing. You, Everybody wants to understand why this matriarch is in fact such a bitch. And so they give her this kind of, um, you know, forbidden love, kind of like uh, sad, like whatever. Um, well, it's like a dead lover that she never gets to be with in the movie. And um, there's a rumor that kills her husband that she in fact used to have this lover and that he is in fact the uh, father of the daughter who leaves, Gertrudis, Gertrudis. Um, so you, you have this whole storyline that they put into the movie that is not in the novel here. And it's a, it's an important one because Gertrudis is, is very sexually free. She's a total rebel. So you have this idea in the movie that this, um, you know, this, this lover who actually happens to be mixed race, which is like very, it's, it's prominent in the movie, and it's kind of a weird thing. There's a lot of, again, I could talk for a long time about the colonial overtones in uh, the movie and in the book, but this added this whole dimension of race that wasn't like, I mean, I can imagine people being offended by it and just being like, what the fuck? But I also think that it, um, you know, it talks about some, some like independence of mind and some very appropriate rebellion on the part of Gertrudis I mean, I think you really love this character, at least I did. So I think you have this this sense of, of um, you know, perhaps this lover who happens to be mixed race of also being sort of this heroic person. But the, the people who are writing the movie, including Laura Esquivel, she had a big part in it, they, they made this real effort to give this whole backstory for why Mama Lena was so miserable. It's interesting to me that in the book, she's just like, I don't need to explain this. This woman is like a, just a, just a rural... Um, I mean, she's very powerful. She runs this ranch by herself. She doesn't need men. She's incredibly competent. She runs the ranch well. She's like very powerful. So in lots of ways, she's this kind of, um, you know, icon of like real like machismo, which is like not even a word. Um, but like she really, really is this, you know, kind of badass woman, but she's also a real bitch to her youngest daughter. So and there's a lot of repression that happens on the part of the mother, even though um, she's in this very like liberated role in some ways. So she's also really brave and really stands up to the military forces who come. Um, they happen to be revolutionaries who come, but she still is like, no one's coming into my house. And she does this total like Jedi mind trick that we're gonna talk about. Um, because I do wanna talk about the power of this matriarch, but, that is all a very long digression to get back to this idea of the silence of Tita um, and, and the voice of the matriarch. So one of the things that happens throughout the book is we have this very small but very significant evolution in the voice of Tita. So in the beginning, we have this idea and the narrator is saying this. I'm, I'm back to the aphorism now. 
Dicen que al buen entendor pocas palabras. So this idea of the good listener has few words, we're sort of elevating this idea that Tita is in fact, uh, she's a good listener and, and she is someone who doesn't have very much of a voice. Okay, we're gonna move on to the next aphorism, which is, I believe, on page 11. El flojo y el mezquino andan doble su camino. So I'm also realizing here, I didn't look this up, um, and I don't, I don't really have a great translation for you, and I'm realizing that, in fact, I maybe am not interpreting this correctly, but uh, I think it's not bad. It's not a bad interpretation. It says right here, um, el flojo y el mezquino. So, like, weakness, el flojo, like like a week. They're talking about sewing here, and she has not done her ilvanas correctly. I don't even know what those are. I feel like it's part of a corset or like pleats or seams or something. But her mother is criticizing her because um, she does very beautiful little stitches and she's done a very good job, but it's like, of course, not good enough for the matriarch. And she says, el flojo y el mezquino andan doble su camino. I, I think the way I'm interpreting that, but I think what it what it can mean is that they sort of double your time. So um, mesquino is like if something is like shabby or kind of lame or weak. Um, so this idea of, of if something is flojo, if it's like not tightly done and it's also kind of shabby or weak, mesquino, like it's just kind of lame, that those two things together, um, andandoble su camino, I think they, they go together and also maybe it has this idea that that it's it's making um, like it's a wasting time thing. Uh, what it brings to mind is this idea of like a stitch in time saves nine, you know, this idea that or or haste makes waste. This idea that if you're very careful about something and you do it in a very strong, tight, um, you know, kind of perfect way that you will avoid um, you will avoid things being shabby and you will avoid, you know, things taking much longer. That's my own little interpretation of that refrain that we are just looking at here. Okay, and then I'm going to move on to the one on page uh, 14. Oh, also though, importantly in that one, so the guy that she is falling in love with, that Tita falls in love with, um, and he comes to ask her hand, and of course, this all happens early in the novel. I'm not spoiling anything for you. Um, and it turns out that, in fact, Pedro, who she loves, is going to marry her older sister, Rosaura because of course Tita can't marry because she has to take care of her mother forever. So this idea of el flojo y el mezquino, the guy's name is Pedro Mesquiz. That actually might be wrong. I'm looking that up right now. Um, his name, yes, Musquiz. It's Pedro Musquiz. So to me, Musquiz right away reminded me of mezquino. So you have this kind of um, like resonance with this idea of mezquino, which is like just shabby and kind of lame and like just not good. Um, so you have this this um, this idea of el flojo y el mezquino. In my mind, it was like weakness or like, um, you know, like a not thorough job together with your lover, Pedro Musquiz. Um, those two things together will be bad for you. Also, I, I imagine that flojo like can mean weak and, and sort of like um, easy. And she's also shabby that um, that's not going to be good in the long run. And when I say easy, I mean it in that gross old um sexual way from like the 70s like if a girl is easy it means you know she's sexually um empowered maybe let's go with empowered um so again this is an aphorism that is underscoring what is happening in the story with tita and um pedro musquiz on page 14 here um down at the bottom dicen que al sordo no oye pero compone um, so, al sordo no oye, pero compone. So this idea of um, deaf people, they don't hear, but they, they, they compose things, they put things together. So again, it's this idea of silence and this idea of like, you, it may seem like Tita is not taking in all of this stuff, but really she's kind of scheming and putting together, componer, like composing. So she's not, she's not hearing, um, she's, she's essentially deaf, uh, but she is in fact putting together some sort of plan. And in fact, um, you know, she, she sort of does that. Okay. Um, and then the next one we're going to look at again, that was, it had a lot to do with her silence and her kind of, um, her, her like withdrawal from her mother and her family page uh, 34 this has much to do with her relationship with Nacha who is this incredible um, maternal figure uh, that, that is very important in the novel because she's a sort of a stand-in matriarch and she's also very adept in the kitchen so um, a lot of Tita's uh, you know skill as a cocinera but also like her her kind of um, sensuality and her appreciation of food and spices all um, come through Nacha 
um, who in fact, you know, dies with this picture of her fiance, which is so sad. Like it's essentially Nacha has the same sort of destiny that Tita is, um, you know, trying to avoid. So this idea of solo, here it is. Solo las ollas saben los hervores de su caldo. So only the pot knows the boiling of its broth. But then she goes on and says, but I know yours. So it's this very sweet use of like a, like a, um, you know, a home saying, a kind of a domestic sort of saying, like only the pot knows how the broth boils. But then she says, but this is not just saying that, but then she says, but Tita, I know what your broth I know the boiling of your broth. So it's it's a very sweet kind of um, intimate use of this refrán. And it also, of course, echoes the idea of como agua, como agua para chocolate. So this idea of like water for chocolate. So you have these domestic um, sayings and you have these um, nice kind of... Uh, ideas about, again, things that are kind of boiling and things that are rising and things that are under pressure and under a lot of heat. Um, and in the first case, again, this is all of Tita's emotions that are that are moving towards something positive, the chocolate, the delicious chocolate. Um, but also here we have this idea of the intimacy between Nacha and, uh, and um, Tita. Okay, we're going to look at our final refrán. Okay, here on page 37, um, this is a point in the novel where Pedro has just um, married the sister, Rosaura, and tells Tita that the only reason he did it is to be close to her. So he's he's such a weenie. He's such a, uh, he's such a, I don't know, I do not love Pedro. Um, but Pedro is like, you know, he does this thing where he basically is wronging all the women um, in the name of love. You know, he wants to be close to Tita, so he marries Rosaura, and he's, Rosa, poor Rosaura is miserable. Um, and also the whole Tita thing is, it's not, it's, you know, difficult, obviously. Um, but uh, of course, the matriarch is always hip to what is going on, and she sees every single little, um, you know, look that passes between the two lovers. The mother is understanding um, that that they have had some sort of like little rendezvous by the bathroom, and they, meaning Tita and Pedro, but she says to her daughter Tita, "No te hagas la mosquita muerta." So essentially, like, don't be the dead fly, which is a translated it, translated into English means like don't pretend like you wouldn't or like don't pretend like that's something you wouldn't do or like don't be such a like don't be such a saint like like sort of a under, you you have to understand we all know that you would do that um which is interesting because you do have this idea here of like the the um what the mother is thinking what the matriarch is thinking here um this idea of like we all know that you're not a saint when in fact most of what tita does is incredibly saintly um and and you do have this kind of murder thing going on which is actually kind of annoying at times but um one of the aphorisms again is here just really illustrating how mean the mother is how cold-hearted and um and and like you know, it's like death and destiny and like until I die, you have to take care of me. And essentially that the value of Tita is no more than a, a, a mosca, a mosquita. Um, so like a like a dead little fly. Okay, now we have covered the um, refranes, all of these sayings that we have throughout at least the beginning of the book, or maybe I stopped paying attention. But now we are going to... Um, move on from the epigraph in the beginning, which is the refrán that kicked us off, and we're going to look at the structure. So um, what we have here, it says right here on this page, Capítulo 1, Enero, Tortas de Navidad. So one of the things that this book is, in fact, is a cookbook. I mentioned this in the Spanish version. I have not tried any of these because I essentially did not have las ganas. I just was like, I do not have the desire. I don't really cook anymore. Um, some of these actually sounded delicious to me, but they're also very involved. And I just, it, it doesn't, I don't think it really functions like an actual, actual cookbook. Although you can go online and you can find people's interpretation and, and like very um, granulated, um, you know, recipes and ideas about how you go about making these exact recipes. So, you know, maybe if you're having a book club meeting about this, you can get together and make some tortas de Navidad or like a, you know, a little mole if you're really ambitious. So, the important thing here, though, is that 
When we have these interludes that are about the kitchen and about these recetas, so a couple of things are very important here. One is that we're given the structure of the novel. So it does go from Enero, from, from January until December, and they're very seasonal, these different uh, recipes that we are seeing as we go along. And there's a lot to do with food. Um, you know, we have a list of ingredients on the next page, and then we have the manera de hacerse, like the, the instructions for how you make it. And very quickly, those instructions, um, you know, sort of meld into the telling of the story. But you do have this sense of things happening in a year. And that's very appealing to me as a reader, and I think to many readers, is this idea, yes, of course, we have some digressions, but we really know that like the, 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 the sort of the story is confined. We have this time frame. And I think that is helpful for people. I'm not sure why. I guess it's just human nature to want some limits. Um, but it's a very tidy way for us. And, and because the way that it's set up, like it's January and you have this recipe. So you have right away this sense of, uh, of, of like the structure. You, you don't have to know that it goes January through December. You sort of assume that that's the case. You also might be a little confused why tortas de Navidad the Christmas cakes are in January, but that is because in Mexico you would be having the Dia de Reyes, the day the day of the kings that is celebrated on el 6 de enero, the sixth of, of January. So that's why we have this um, this like in January at the beginning of what we would consider the year um, in in the United States. You have a Christmas celebration because one of the main ones is happening early in January. So before we take a look at the beginning, I do want to mention a couple of other things that this kind of cookbook structure is adding. So it, it comes, we see it in the in the epigraph as well, but it's becoming more clear here that the domestic is really the focus of this novel. And that's very important because not only do we have the elevation of this matriarchy and we have the elevation, I mean, they're like not dudes in here. Like the, the family is made up of three daughters. The father dies. You know, there's a reference to him having died um, when when Tita is very young. So essentially, you know, th there's there's a vacuum. Well, it's not even a vacuum. It's it's well, it's a vacuum of men that was filled by the matriarch. And until Pedro comes to marry Rosaura, when I think Tita is like 15 years old, um, you have the woman, the mother, the matriarch, Mamalena, um, is is in fact running the uh, the ranch very successfully, and in fact it's important that we know her as Mama Elena, Mama Elena, because you you have this sense of her as being a mother, like it's not Senora with her last name de de la Garza, no de la de la, I cannot remember the last name. What is it? Um, I got it right here. Oh my God, it's de la Garza. I totally guessed it. Um, so. I mean, I didn't guess it. I, I remembered it, which is actually a shocker at 54 years of age um, as a woman. So, um, but you have this woman, we're not calling her Senora de la Garza, we're calling her Mamalena, because in part, you know, the story is told, um, it's a third person narration, but we are very close to Tita's reality for much of it. But it is important that we are not talking about her as, you know, with, with her title and her last name, we are talking about her as Mama Lena, and she is operating from a position of real power, even as the mother. So this is reinforcing the idea of matriarchy, and of course, of the, um, you know, as the head of the family, and also, um, again, a formidable head of the ranch who is able to run things well and defend herself uh, when, when warring forces come to sort of, um, you know, get sustenance from the ranch. So um, we have this elevation of the domestic because it is a cookbook. So you have this idea of, of, of cooking as a really important art and as one that is, is um, you know, the main way that Tita is able to express herself. And um, it, it's, it's really elevated in the sense that you as the reader, there's a certain assumption here that you are somewhat interested in the domestic arts. Also, we have sewing, we have a bunch of other um, domestic arts that are sort of, uh, you know, elevated by this book that is really, it, it's really focused um, on the domestic, but with this background of the Mexican Revolution and, and the history. 
So the book is a, um, it, it's interesting, it functions very much like a third person narrator, but it's not exactly. It is told by the grand niece of Tita, whose nickname is also Tita. So we have this first person narrator, which is important. And one of the reasons why that is important is because at the final, at the very end of the book, we realize that, um, that Tita, the, the narrator, who is um, a much younger generation, who is the grand niece of the Tita, who is uh, the main character of the book, what has remained at the end of the book is this uh, book of recipes. So essentially what we are holding in our hand is the thing that remains and it allows the young Tita to tell the story of her great aunt. Again, this is reinforcing this idea of matriarchy because we have um, you know, a female, a young you know, a, a niece, who is telling the story of all of these women. So occasionally you have kind of this, this first person narrator who, and I love this when this happens, I think it's very appealing to lots of readers. <clears throat> you have this idea of, of a first person narrator who's kind of popping in here and there and you're a little intrigued you're like, oh, wait, who is telling us this story? Um, but then very happily, it kind of morphs quickly into a third person narrator that allows the narration to be much more nimble and much more kind of wide ranging. So, oh gosh, I mean, again, I'm just realizing here that we do not have uh, an English version. So it, it starts with manera de hacerse, which is essentially, you know, um, instructions, how you do it. La cebolla tiene que estar firmemente picada. So it's this idea that the onion needs to be very uh, finely chopped. Again, we have um, this, this kind of mixture in the very beginning of the book w uh, between the first and the third person narrators. Um, and, and what happens is when Tita is, is sort of uh, explaining what the cookbook says, again, that first line is, La cebolla tiene que estar firmemente picada. And then she goes on and says, you should put the little piece of onion on the top of the head in order to, um, to, to avoid like a lagrimeo, like the, the floods of tears. And one thing, we're not gonna talk too much today about magic realism, uh, but there are some elements of magic realism in the book. Some people classify it as magical realism. I don't, I use both of those terms, magic realism and magical realism. <clears throat> um, some people classify it as such. I, for me, there are elements of it, but that is not sort of, for me, like the, the idea of the chivalric novel or the idea of the soap opera are much more germane and much more sort of evident and frankly, more interesting. But you do have elements of, uh, of this, this uh, magic realism. And one of the ways that we see it is that Tita, who is um, in utero in the beginning of the novel is is said to be so sensitive to the 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 um you know the the like onion fumes what do you call that so sensitive to chopping onions that even in utero when she was in Mama Lena's uh, belly that she um, was crying and crying and crying even in utero and she was born on this kind of flood of tears so um, and in the movie it's a very clear kind of magic realism moment because the the baby is born and the whole kitchen essentially floods with the amniotic fluid that is made up of the tears of the um, the first Tita, the OG Tita, the, uh, you know, the original. Um, but it is also learning, we also learn at the beginning of the book here that young Tita has the same sensibility, the same uh, sensitivity to, um, to cebollas. So you have this nice tie between the generations and this underscoring of the matriarchy, but it's all kind of couched within this, um, you know, the domestic, the idea of, 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 you know, onions making you cry. It's also, of course, um, you know, it's, it's really basing us in, uh, in this idea of, of tears and of sorrow and of Tita as, you know, it's not a great omen that you are born in like a, like a wave of tears and you have produced so many tears in utero that you are like flooding your kitchen. Um, there, there's, there's a lot, lot we can unpack there, but it's, um, it's not going to really spell like the happiest life for Tita. I think we, uh, I think we can understand that. Okay, now we have discussed structure, we've discussed the aphorisms, we're gonna, the, the, the sayings, the short sayings that, that sort of color the book, and including the title and the epigraph. Um, but now we're gonna um, make our move, a very quick move into Mexican history. So um, the revolution, the Mexican revolution was very important. It's the years are essentially 1910 to 1917, very complicated, very, very violent, 900,000 people died. Um, but just sort of the bare bones of it are that the uh, Mexican constitution was um, in place uh, by 19, uh, well, 
that's not good, um, by 1857. So they, they adopted the constitution then that established certain rights, but then fairly soon thereafter, about 20 years later in 1877, you see me looking at my notes. So I knew 10, I knew 1910 to 1917, nailed it, nailed it. The rest of this, um, you know, I, I would have been able to be within maybe 20 years, uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I would have been able to like really nail it. Um, but from 1877 until 1910, you had this dictatorship that was happening in Mexico um, by uh, a dictator named Porfirio Diaz. So um, in Spanish, it's known as El Porfiriato, those years of, of dictatorship. And it was a very, uh, you know, like a very strong dictator. I don't actually know tons about it, but certainly um, this was not great for the common man. So a lot of intellectuals and a lot of um, young people and sort of the, the proletariat, very much like what's happening in Russia and in other uh, in other places, um, they, they they banded together uh, as the um, the revolucionarios, the revolutionaries or the rebeldía, which, you know, is just the rebels. Um, so you have the federales, who are the forces of, um, of the uh, dictadura. So they're sort of the more conservative, uh, more fascist type of people. And there was a whole series of leaders, but they were sort of kicked off by this long dictatorship of Porfirio Diaz. Um, and in those revolutionaries, you have some really, really important, uh, you know, heroes of Mexican history, well, I mean, I think we all, in my mind, they're heroes, like in the same way that Che Guevara is a hero, although that's a complicated thing to say in many ways. Um, but, but you know, these are, these are like people who were standing up for the people against dictators. So I like to think that they are um, generally acknowledged as uh, heroic. I'm a little uneasy because now I'm suspicious of everything I ever learned in history. Uh, and I know that it was a very, uh, you know, gruesome chapter in uh, in. Mexican history. And I also know, I mean, again, when we have the, the people, when the military forces in the novel come to the uh, ranch and they're essentially kind of ransacking the ranch, those are the revolutionaries. Like those are like the quote unquote good guys. This does get back to the idea of colonialism, which we're not going to delve into deeply. But you can tell from the um, from the novel itself, and it is certainly underscored in the movie, that this is a very um, like sort of colonial family who is living there. And obviously they're running this ranch. So they have a lot of means and it's a very large ranch that they are running. And they have lots of like weird English things going on um, just in terms of like their, or Spanish, probably a mixture of both, probably actually a lot of Spanish stuff, but like a lot of their clothing and a lot of their, um, you know, their, their, the sort of, uh, you know, their, their home and their, their furnishings and whatnot. They're both Mexican, but also there is this real sort of colonial feel. It is not, you don't get a sense that this is um, a, a family that has a lot of indigenous ties. Um, so, but the heroes who are sort of rising from this are people who are very well known, like Pancho Villa and like um, Zapata, Emiliano Zapata. Um, so, so these are very important people. I found the best photos of them. I'm putting them up right now. Um, if you're watching on the YouTube, and if you uh, check out the Instagram, you can see these amazing photos of both of those heroes. But I do want to um, underscore the fact that this is a very violent, um, you know, a very violent seven years in Mexican history with a lot of um, sort of war atrocities on everyone's part. I mean, when is war ever a good idea, really? Okay, so that's what we have for Mexican history. And it is very important, again, I'm just gonna just sort of underscore this. When we have this revolution in the background of the book, one of the things that you should be paying attention to is the way that that revolution is mirrored by the by sort of you know minor and major revolutionary things that are happening in the home. It is no mistake that when Gertrudis, um, by the way, how funny is her name? So um, Rosaura is like a fine name, and Tita is like this little diminutive, like kind of nicknamey kind of thing. And Gertrudis is like Gertrude. So you have this idea; it's somewhat colonial. It's like you know, it comes I would imagine from the German. Um, I had a Spanish teacher growing up. It was so great. She is the woman, actually, her name is Sherry Rusher. She inspired a whole entire generation of young Castilla students, go Gators, um, to, to pursue Spanish literature. I mean, she literally, I took Spanish one and two 
in high school with her. I went to Spain with her. I learned so much from her. And it is largely because of her that I was interested in Spanish literature. And it is the reason in many ways why I am here. But she did this awesome thing where um, we all had names. We chose our Spanish names as you often do in a Spanish high school class. But she had us choose these super unattractive names. Like my name was Prudencia, which is Prudence, of course. Um, but we had a Gertrudis, we had a, um, I can't remember now. I'll have to load some in later when, when my brain starts functioning again. Um, but they were so, so funny. And they were um, like like names, you know, that were just like not great names, um, if it, sort of objectively speaking. And we loved it. I loved being Prudence. And I loved that I had a Gertrude in class with me back then. So the Gertrudis in the novel uh, is, she's the middle sister. She's the middle child, you know, like archetypal. And it's so awesome because when she has her sexual awakening, thanks to um, the, the roses, you know, that, that Tita had pressed to her chest and, and, and there was some blood and whatnot um, from the thorns of the roses scraping her skin. And then she makes this meal and it essentially awakens um, Gertrudis's sexuality. And when Gertrudis is sweating, which again, this is that magic realism, her sweat is not only pink, you know, the, the sort of actual sweat beads, but it smells like roses and the scent of those roses um, that, that it is her sweat travels so far that one of the revolutionary soldiers, of course, um, you know, is is like he's about to kill a, a federal um, in like a river and just is like taken by the scent, by the rose scented sweat of Gertrudis, of Gertrude, and takes off across the desert. And she is running naked through the desert, um, which you'll have to read to find out why she ends up naked. It's awesome. So she's running naked. And of course, he picks her up and she straddles him on the horse and they go galloping off, making love. And she is super nude and it is great. So um, that is a very memorable part of the movie. I imagine if you saw it back then, maybe that's what you remember. I also think it's maybe part of what they pulled for the trailer, which makes some sense. But it really, you know, it's one of the best parts of the movie. So I always hate that when they pull the best, best, best in the trailer. So that is a long way of saying that um, there is this, this rebellion that is taking place, like the revolutionaries and the rebels in the Mexican um, you know, army during the revolution are directly involved. There's like a parallel because one of the daughters, in fact, does her own kind of rebellion and naked leaves the family and goes off with this revolutionary. So interestingly, um, there's a part where he, you find out from the, the pastor fairly soon thereafter that she is working in a, um, a bordel, like in a brothel um, on, the, on the border. And I, I mean, everybody sort of takes that at face value, but I had this sense recently, I was like, wait a minute, like I, I wonder if because we are hearing that from the pastor, if this is like his way of saying that she is sexually liberated and the only way that they can sort of conceive of that is this idea of her having become a full sex worker, like a full prostitute. So I like to, um, in, in this rereading of the novel, I like to interpret that as um, Laura Esquivel saying that like the, the way the pastor is reporting it is that she's working in a brothel, um, but that in fact maybe she's just having her own sexual liberation off with the revolutionary soldier. Okay, so um, we are going to move on from the idea of Mexican history and the way that it parallels some of the revolution that's happening in the home to talk about voice. So first, we're going to begin um, with the voice of the narrator. Just a quick little recap. We have this, this grand niece who is telling the story, which is very important because we have the voice of this younger generation who is reporting voices and, and um, like um, acontecimientos, what, um, like um, occurrences of her, of her like, um, you know, of her family going back, you know, three generations, but all of the women. So you have this very like firmly matriarchal voice in the shape of the narrator. Um, and it's a very domestic document that she is reading from, which is this cookbook um, that we also are holding in our hands. So we have this idea. And in fact, Tita, who is the, the nickname of the young girl and is also the name of our protagonist in, in the first generation, it's very important that they share the same name because you have this idea of, of Tita, the narrator, as being able to, to, to voice the things that Tita, the, the um, you know, the 
whatever her namesake, is not able to voice. So it's this beautiful kind of um, raising up and giving voice to a past generation through uh, a younger generation. So I want to take a look, though, at the ways that um, Tita's voice is stymied. So we're going to look at page nine. So obviously page nine is very early in the novel. And what we are having at this very early moment is, um, you know, the, the mother is saying, like, you can't get married. We have Tita attempting to use her voice to create a boundary and to stand up for herself. Um, so this sort of destiny is, is uh, articulated by her mother. And what she says is, Pero es que yo opino que, so essentially, but, but it is that I, 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 I think that, which is nice because it's so hesitant. I mean, we already know that at 15 years old, she's been totally cowed by this matriarchal, powerful figure. So she's like, well, but wait, what I think is that maybe I have this opinion. So she has this kind of hesitating, but like she's making an effort to say like, I have this opinion that this is not right. Like, I don't want to do this plan, mom. And then we have an example of the, the authoritative voice of the matriarch that absolutely squashes our poor, uh, our poor Tita. She says, Tú no opinas nada y se acabó. Nunca por generaciones nadie en mi familia ha protestado ante esta costumbre y no va a ser una de mis hijas quien lo haga. So she says, just like, just absolutely slaps her down here. I mean, other times physically she does slap her down. Here it's just verbal. But she's like, Tú no opinas nada y se acabó. You can uh, opine. You can opine nothing and that's it. Like, just as like, that's it. Then she says, never has anyone, you know, gone up against this custom in my family and none of my girls is going to start. So you have this idea of Tita trying to express something and her mother being like, you cannot express a thing. And that's it. So we have very early in the book this idea of the mother's voice as absolutely eclipsing the daughter. We even have an ellipse here. So you have, you know, what Tita is trying to say and then it's dot, dot, dot um, because the mother doesn't even let her finish the sentence. So again, we have this kind of silence. Then on page 66, we have a different kind of voice here. So it says on page 66, um, this is when Tita is in the kitchen and Pedro is, is sort of around and about. El sonido de las ollas al chocar unas contra otras, el olor de las almendras dorándose en el comal, la, melodi la melodiosa voz de Tita que contaba mientras cocinaba, habían despertado su instinto sexual. So here we have Pedro, who, because of the sounds of the kitchen and the smell of the almendras, the, the um, almonds, you know, toasting on the comal, which is like the, the, the kind of the grill, you know, um, you and then and then very importantly, the voice of Tita, who is singing, she's kind of like a siren, you know, like pulling him in. Um, but very importantly, she is awakening his sexual, you know, yearnings um, with her voice. So we know that she has this voice that is very sensual. It's, it it, it um, has some power because it's literally like shaping the life of this man. And it is very, very tied to the domestic and to the kitchen. Okay, and then on page 100, we have this, uh, the final, uh, you know, sort of bit of her voice that we're going to look at. So um, this is when they have found out that the, um, the family who uh, Pedro and Rosaura and their son Roberto have all moved to San Antonio, Texas because Rosaura's health apparently I mean, that's the cover story that Rosaura's health is, is delicate. Um, but really, it, this is an example of Mama Lena trying to separate um, these potential lovers, um, Pedro and Tita. So um, Tita, who has really had a big hand in uh, the raising of Roberto, we're not going to get into that. Um, uh, actually, I'm going to get into it. So this is another one of those kind of magic realism moments. So Tita, um, Rosaura is unable to feed her baby, uh, breastfeed her baby, and Magically, Tita, who has never, there's a line about how she is never able to like let anyone go hungry or like never able to ignore someone who has signs of hunger. That's not a great translation, but I think you get the point. She um, holds the baby to her breast and can magically feed Roberto. So kind of on the sly, she has been breastfeeding her sister's baby, which is very important because you have this idea she's never going to be able to, um, you know, marry and have children according to the dictates of her own tiny dictatorship. Because again, you know, the the the, the uh, Mexican Revolution, not only are we seeing the the 
kind of revolution among the family members like Gertrudis, but you're also seeing um, the dictatorship against which these young women are fighting. The dictatorship, of course, being run by their um, mother, who was very dictatorial. So, but you have this kind of minor revolution of Tita as being able not only to feed, you know, her entire family well, but also to be able to breastfeed this young child who, in fact, is unable to survive without her. So when the family moves to San Antonio, it is exactly the, the lack of breastfeeding that is responsible for the death of Roberto. And this is the moment when we see Tita's, you know, her, her emotions are sort of bubbling up, como agua para chocolate, and they are overflowing, and they overflow in uh, the, the, the form of her voice. So the mother is saying, like, you need to do this and you need to do that. And she says, Mire lo que hago con sus órdenes. Ya me cansé, ya me cansé de obedecerla. So she's like, yeah, watch what I'm going to do with your order, with your orders. You know, like I'm done. I'm done. Um, I'm done obeying you. So um, and then so the mother at that point, of course, takes a wooden spoon, a domestic, uh, you know, uh, implement, a domestic uh, weapon in this case, hits Tita, breaks her nose um, and Tita is pushed even further and says, Usted es la culpable de la muerte de Roberto. So she's like, you, you are responsible for the death of this child. So it's a very grave, um, you know, accusation that she is leveling, and it's true. And it's, um, it's sort of the last thing that she says to the mother. And this is very much uh, like a 19th century novel, and it's also very much like a soap opera, in that at this point, you know, um, Tita is overcome with like a breakdown and she essentially, you know, can't function. And so she is taken off. Um, well, first she goes up into the Palomar, up into the dovecote um, with all of the doves. And then she finally is able to leave the home. So this idea, you know, she has to pass through this kind of difficult, you know, dark soul of the night kind of a thing. And she has to be removed by uh, this doctor figure who is very important in the book. But you also have um, this, this sense of her as finally being able to leave, you know, this, this very suffocating um, ranch where she is under the dictatorship of her mother. She's able to leave that space um, because she has used her voice to level this accurate, um, you know, uh, accusation against her mother. Okay, um, so we're going to not dive too much deeper into the voz de la madre. That's the next thing I have on here is the, the voice of the mother, but I think you've already heard it. I mean, also, do we need it to have more airtime? No, but we do have this idea of Tita as using her voice in a way that is very, um, it's very satisfying. Okay, so a couple of the very last things we're going to do is look um, at elements of the soap opera. Um, and it's one of my favorite things to think about because, and you see it a little bit um, in the movie, although a little less so than I was sort of imagining in my mind. So there are a few things um, that, that it's obviously predating the telenovela because it's taking place in, you know, 1910. So we're not having um, soap operas then, but it is a book that comes out in 89 in Mexico and 92 in the United States. So you have, you know, in the 80s, we had our soap operas, we loved our soap operas. So you have this sense of, I think we still did. Maybe it was kind of an early 80s. Maybe it was like a 70s and 80s kind of moment. But we definitely, you know, we still loved our, our soap operas. And the telenovela in Mexico is a very important cultural institution. So the parallels that I see are um, the fact that you have, it's it's it says in the title, I didn't even read the complete title, but the complete title is Novela como agua para chocolate. Novela de entregas mensuales con recetas, amores y remedios caseros. Como agua para chocolate. Novela de entregas mensuales con recetas, amores y remedios caseros. So it is um, a, a book. It's a book in monthly installments that has uh, recipes, romances, and um, home cures, remedios caseros, like, um, what is that called? A home cure? I, you know what I mean. Home remedy. Okay, so, but this idea of it being monthly installments is, this idea of installments is, is sort of like the telenovela. Most of the ones that I loved, um, like All My Children and As the World Turns, I spent a lot of time um, in the summers watching All My Children, which is really something. Um, but the, uh, the, that idea of this like installments is very much like what we have in the novel. And in fact, I think Esquivel is underscoring that with this idea um, at the end of each section, at the end of each month, she sa it says continuará 
and then you have a little dot, 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 um, and then you have a sense of what is coming next. So it's almost like you would have at the end of, um, of uh, you know, a, an episode, your daily episode, where it would say, to be continued. And it was always at like a, um, like kind of a big moment, like a cliffhangery moment. So you'd have that to be continued all in capital letters and you'd be like, what? You know, so you have this continuara. I'll show you if you're watching the, uh, the YouTube right now. It says continuara. And then you have this like next week on As the World Turns or like tomorrow on All My Children. Um, here you have siguiente receta, pastel, chabela, de bodas. Um, and we actually don't need that here because it's right here. You know, like we don't need it on this page because it is on the next page and they're always facing each other the way the book is typeset. So we really don't need her to be saying to us, to be continued, next recipe, you know, wedding cake. Um, and obviously, again, like wedding cake is a very significant recipe to be including here. But you have this kind of soap opera-y feel just simply because of this to be continued and like tomorrow on. So you have those overtones. You also, of course, have this um, real focus on love and on romance. And you have, um, I think in soap operas, uh, at least American ones, you had a lot of this like absurd situations where it would be like, oh my God, it turns out that she was always married to her stepbrother. And in this case, you actually have like the brother marrying one sister, but being in love with another sister. So you have a lot of those like triangles and a lot of those sort of absurd situations that you would have in a, uh, in a soap opera. And you also have a little bit, um, I'm not sure you really like ever had someone, you know, lighting a, a whole like, um, outhouse like um, baño like a little kind of old school like wooden bathhouse thing on fire because she was like so sexually aroused um, that wasn't happening on a telenovela but you certainly would have like crazy things happening um, you know people uh, I don't know falling off I don't, I don't I can't think of any examples of that but you have this idea of, of like kind of these magic realism things that are happening in the novel. Um, certainly her riding off on a horse, um, you know, and making love on the horse. Again, I'm not sure you saw exactly that ever on a telenovela, um, but you do have this sense of some of these absurd things, some of the kind of over-the-top stuff that's happening in the novel is a little bit like the over-the-top stuff that you would have in, uh, in a soap opera. You also have some of the themes um, of, of, of some of those tele, telenovelas, um, such as, you know, again, this, this focus on love, but you also have things like destiny and injustice and unrequited love and, you know, like very like close proximity unrequited love. So a lot of the same, um, you know, sort of domestic and familial themes that were really the bread and butter of soap operas are, are the exact same kind of um, stuff that Laura Esquivel is building this novel with. I just was just struck just right then while I was thinking about the novel. It's so great. Like you have, there's just so much to it because you do have the backdrop of this revolution and how important it was and you have all the parallels, but then you also have this kind of levity that comes with some real humor and this kind of contemporary feel of the soap opera. And you have this kind of cute, dare I say cute, um, you know, like convention slash gimmick of this, this uh, you know, cookbook that is being handed down through generations. It's just a real accomplishment and it's a real delight to read just because it's so, um, it's so fun and, and in many ways it's very like empowering and hopeful and very entertaining. So I, I was so happy um, about the idea of diving back into it. The last thing that I will say is slightly more literary, um, which is that I do see lots of echoes of the romance, the, the, the chivalric novel. So in the chivalric novel, so the first ones were before Don Quixote is 1605, I think is when we like actually did it, maybe 1603. Interestingly, same time that we have the big, big Shakespearean tragedies like Macbeth and Hamlet and stuff. So you can think about them happening. It's always just such a trip to me that they were happening at the same time. And how early that is, like, you know, beginning of the 17th century, 16 or whatever, like that's a very early time to be um, writing just such a masterpiece as Don Quixote de la Mancha. Um, and it's so interesting to me that like Don Quixote is an incredible send up, like it's an absolute spoof and it is so original. And so I don't think you can say that, like you can't say so unique or very unique little tip for you all out there. Um, I mean, I think everyone knows that, but you know, just reinforce that for yourself. Something's either unique or it's not. Um, but 
it is original and it is unique, that novel. And many actually name it as sort of the first novel because you have this idea of a narrator who is somewhat unreliable, but you also have this idea of, of um, you know, something that is written in prose as opposed to something that is in a play or something that is in poetry, but also that has a lot of the conventions that we see later and not for a long time. Like it's a couple hundred years before we really start seeing consistent novels writing. God, we should probably read Don Quixote. That'd be so fun. We should do that. Um, but we have this idea of, of this chivalric novel as having come a couple of hundred years before. There was um, one called Amadis de Gaula, which is a Spanish one written in Spanish language. You have a couple of really big ones in French, the Romance de la Rose. There's all this like, um, you know, chivalric stuff being written. Um, I want to say in the 1400s, like a really, really long time ago. And they were also like this book in that they fo they focused on love. It was often unrequited love. They focused on destiny. They focused on frustrated love. Um, and there was a lot about these sort of men. Um, and in the case of Don Quixote, this is the real parallel I see. In the case of Don Quixote, he's like this bumbling dreamer, you know, who's like this skinny kind of old like guy who's actually totally delusional and he is in love with this like chunky bartender woman who's hilarious and amazing and he's got his cute little sidekick so you've got this like kind of this send up this absurd version of this like hyper romantic um you know literary convention that happened hundreds of years before. So here in the case of Pedro Musquiz, we have this guy who's kind of like a Don Quixote character. Like he's just kind of a weenie, like he's pretty ineffectual. And there are a couple of different times where he could have taken some initiative and he just doesn't. And he's just kind of lame. Um, Don Quixote's not really lame because you have so much like, um, you know, compassion for him. And he's so kind of, he's such a dreamer. That's where we get the word quixotic. Um, like you're so, you're kind of rooting for him in a way that I was not rooting for Pedro this time. I was like, why are you such a weenie? But um, you, you do have that kind of image of like this ineffectual, um, kind of dreamy, love-struck male who is functioning in a world that is like very real for the women. Like Dulcinea, who is, the, is his object, it's Don Quixote's object of love. She's like a very powerful, real, um, you know, woman who's just like getting her life done. I want to say right now, this is so embarrassing. I should know this. Um, I want to say she's like, works at a, like an, an inn. I feel like she's like, works at a, I'm going to come back to you on that. Not this time. I'm coming back to you maybe when we uh, read Don Quixote de la Mancha. But I, I think she's like a, she's not like a Mama Lena. She's certainly not like a dictator bitch person. But, you know, you have this sense of her as being someone who's competent and, and grounded and real, maybe more like Tita. Um, but but you have um, this, this kind of dreamy, ineffectual dude at the center of both, not the center of this one, but at the center of uh, uh, Don Quixote de la Mancha. So you have this chivalric novel that, that has a lot of the same emphases that we see in Como Agua para Chocolate. And I think those elements actually give it a little more literary weight than simply the idea of the uh, soap opera. So... I have really loved um, diving into this with you, both in English and in Spanish. Um, now I'm really excited about potentially reading Don Quixote. It would really take a lot of hours for me to do both in English and in Spanish. That's a book that um, honestly it deserves like a lot of attention, not just a quick 90 minutes. Um, but I really have enjoyed diving in today and I'm, I'm hoping that this idea of looking at the structure of the book, looking at the book as a, as a testament of matriarchy, looking at the Mexican history and looking at how the narrative voice functions at aphorisms and at the influences have, have helped you understand really what an accomplishment uh, this novel is on the part of Laura Esquivel. So, if you've listened to this, um, maybe you just went ahead and watched the movie before you listened to this, which is also a great idea. Um, I hope that you have a better appreciation for it. And, you know, if you're tempted to listen to a little Espanol to just, you know, shake the rust off, I don't know if that's an expression, but I'm making it one, um, then, you know, I hope that that was a fun thing for you to do. And um, head straight back to the Fox page, get yourself something else to listen to, something else to read. Happy reading. Happy reading.